Well, please open with me in God's word to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, this morning we are continuing in this chapter of scripture. And this morning we come to ground zero in the baptism debates that we as Christians are all familiar with. It is this chapter that really begins and centers in the controversy over infant baptism versus believer's baptism. I remember back as I was a young Christian, the first study Bible I ever purchased was the New Geneva Study Bible. Today it's known as the Reformation Study Bible, published by Ligonier Ministries. But in this study Bible, as I began reading God's Word, as I began reading the notes and the articles that were included in, in this wonderful study Bible, I still recommend and encourage people to read. Where do you think its article on baptism was? Maybe Matthew 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No, it wasn't there. Maybe in Acts chapter 2, when Peter on the day of Pentecost preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that day 3,000 souls are converted and baptized into the church. No. If you have a copy of the Reformation Study Bible, you'll find it right here where you have turned, in Genesis chapter 17. And that infant baptism article begins in this way. Though infant baptism has been the majority practice of historic Christianity, its propriety has been solemnly challenged by godly Christians of various denominations. The question surrounding infant baptism rests upon several concerns. The New Testament neither explicitly commands infants to be baptized, nor explicitly prohibits them from being baptized. The debate centers on questions surrounding the meaning of baptism and the degree of continuity between the Old and New Covenants. Now, before we then wrestle over what these verses in this chapter help us to understand about baptism, let's first consider what they reveal to us about Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. So let's read then Genesis 17, verses 15 to 27. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, uh, Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. 
Now, brothers and sisters, let us again pray to our God as we begin this time together. Father, how wonderful it is for us to gather together this morning to sing your praises, to come before your throne in prayer, and now to hear your word preached. So, Father, we ask that you will help us this morning, that you will help us to recognize the truths of your word, and not only to recognize these truths, but to rejoice in them because of how they reveal to us our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we not become so consumed over debates about baptism that we miss what you have sought to reveal to us from your words this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you will help us, you will be with us, that we will continue to stay focused as your word is preached and that you will empower these words, Father, through your Holy Spirit, to take root in our minds and in our hearts so that we will live because of the gospel that is revealed through your word. And that as we live, we will glorify your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we pray that you will bless me then, Father, your weak and humble servants, that I will speak your words for your glory, for the salvation of the souls who have gathered here this morning, and for the encouragement and equipping of the saints who have gathered to be refreshed as Christ is proclaimed. So, Father, we pray for all these things then in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So what is the main point? If I'm to summarize these verses, what we find revealed from this chapter of God's word, and especially these verses, is simply this, that God's chosen people receive his covenant sign. God's chosen people receive his covenant sign. And we can see this main point driven in uh, these verses first, As we read of God's chosen people in verses 15 to 22, and then second, God's covenant sign in verses 23 to 27. So God's covenant people, verses 15 to 22, are established, and then God's covenant sign is received, verses 23 to 27. Now, as we Remember, going back to the beginning of this first book of the Bible, Genesis, we have God who creates the world and everything in the world. But humanity rebels against God and comes under God's judgment for our sin through our first parents, Adam and Eve, which then brings God's curse into this world, the curse of death and the curse of corruption throughout his creation. Yet in the middle of God's curses, he also promises salvation from the wrath of God that we all deserve for our sin. And it's then because of this promise that God calls a man, Abraham, and separates him from his country and his people and his family to then become the father of a chosen nation who will live in a promised land. And it would be then through God's covenant promises to Abraham of descendants and of land that his promise of salvation will come into the world. So we read of Abraham believing in God and trusting in God's promises, which is why Abraham was then saved from God's judgment and he received the righteousness of God because of his faith in God. So as we come to chapter 17, then, we read of God expanding his covenant with Abraham. 
And it includes obligations that are required for his descendants to enjoy these covenant promises, which meant receiving the mark of circumcision upon their bodies. And this ritual, you may remember, is to be performed on a part of a man's body through whom children come to remind Abraham's descendants that they have been set apart by God as his own people and separated from the nations around them to be distinct because they are in a covenant relationship with God unlike the peoples around them in their sin. This Circumcision, then, is also a visible reminder to them of their need to be circumcised in their hearts. That not only will their skin be removed from their bodies, but they need the sin of their hearts removed. So as we then come to these verses in this chapter, God continues speaking with Abraham. And then earlier in the chapter, God had changed Abram's name to Abraham. But now, as these verses begin, we also see Abraham's wife receiving a new name. Now, we're not as clear with Sarai or Sarah, the exact meanings of her name. But the name Sarah and Sarai likely come from the word princess. What we have then is a transition from her exalted status in the world to a new status she's exalted to as a mother. And so God's promises with Abraham, we find here, are now extended to his wife, Sarah. And his blessing of Sarah is stated twice in verse 15 which emphasizes the certainty of God's blessings to her. You see, God's chosen son of the promise will come through her. She will be a mother of nations as Abraham is a father of the multitude. She will be the one through whom kings will come from her as kings are also promised to come through Abraham. But as we reflect upon this, we recognize how unbelievable this promise would have been for Abraham. As we've read, he is at this time 99 years old. Sarah is 90 years old, and not only has she been barren, she is now past the age of having children. So what does Abraham do? probably did what we would have done in this situation. He falls down and laughs at the very idea. Remember back in Genesis 17, 3, Abraham fell on his face in worship. But here we find Abraham falling again on his face in doubt. How easy it can be for us to limit God with what we think is possible rather than trusting in God to keep His word and carry out His plan. We are often those who, because of what we think God is capable of, or what we think is likely to happen, move away from our trust in God to doubt God as we live in this world. And that's exactly what Abraham does here. Again, God called Abraham at this point, God called Abraham out of his homeland, Ur, now almost 25 years ago. Almost a quarter of a century ago. And for the last 13 years, Abraham has been raising another son to be the one through whom God's covenant promises would come. Remember, Abraham, after his wife could not have children, marries Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And together they have a son named Ishmael. 
So through these years, as Abraham sees Ishmael growing up, all of his hopes and dreams are then placed in this son. Why can't he be the chosen son? So Abraham asks God, why not Ishmael? Well, God responds to Abraham's reply here point by point. He says, indeed, Sarah will be the chosen mother because God's promises will be fulfilled according to his sovereign plan, no matter how impossible it may seem to you. This is a work of God's grace and power. And so he says that the son that Abraham and Sarah shall have is to be given a name. They are not to give the name, but God gives them the name of their son. And his name is Isaac, which interestingly means he laughs. He laughs. This then is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises in the midst of Abraham. And as we see in the next chapter, also Sarah's doubt in God's promises. So it is through Isaac that God's covenant with Abraham will be established, not Ishmael. And God's covenant is an everlasting covenant and will continue and not change until it's fulfilled. But then the question becomes, what happens to Ishmael? Well, in God's kindness, he too will be blessed. While he is not the chosen son, he will also be fruitful and multiply. And Ishmael's descendants will also become a nation with 12 tribes. There are 12 princes or 12 tribal leaders over 12 tribes, just as God will also bless Isaac's descendants, the chosen people of Israel with 12 tribes. So Abraham's descendants will then form two nations who will oppose each other. You have one through his son Ishmael, who are children according to his flesh in sin. And then you have the other nation through his son Isaac, those who are chosen by God's grace to then live as God's own covenantal people. And so we see then this promise given to Abraham and Sarah that one year from this announcement... Sarah herself will give birth to their son, Isaac. So I like how Bruce Waltke summarizes this. He writes, The Lord's chosen race will not come by natural generation, but by supernatural grace at the appointed time. That's what we find in these verses. God's sovereign grace at work to carry out his plan of salvation through Abraham and his chosen people. So this chapter began with a theophany where God appears to Abraham in order to speak to him. And after five speeches through this chapter, the last two of which we have read in these verses, God, then this manifestation of God, ascends up into heaven. But before we continue, I ask you, when do you laugh at God? When do you laugh at God? You may start to doubt God's word. After all, things aren't happening like you expected them to. Frankly, I often wrestle with this as a pastor. Why isn't my ministry producing the results and the fruit I think they should be? So we start to doubt God's word and look to the things of the world or what we can do to carry out what we think needs to be done. We can start to doubt his word. Or you can stop praying to God. Because you believe that he will not answer and hear your prayers after months or even years. 
of praying to him about something. So you stop praying, you give up. Or you seek to rationalize your sin before God, as Abraham has done, where you begin to think that your sin was somehow necessary for you to continue living in this world. You know what's remarkable in these verses? How patient God is with us in the midst of our doubts and our sin. God does not in anger cast off Abraham as he laughs, but he continues to speak to Abraham and remind Abraham of his covenant promises. And he also continues to care for us and to speak to us through his word so that our faith will also grow and we will trust in God as his chosen people saved by grace. So we begin here by recognizing God's chosen people. But then we go on in these verses to see that God's chosen people receive his covenant sign. And that's what we read of in verses 23 to 27, God's covenant sign. God has now spoken to Abraham through this chapter. He, his manifestation, his appearing has ascended to heaven. And what will Abraham do now? After all, he's still left with a barren wife who has passed the age of having children. And his son is not the chosen child. Will his doubt become unbelief? Well, listen, Abraham's faith may waver. But his faith in God is genuine, and so it is strengthened through God's word. So after hearing God speak, he once again shows his faith in God by trusting in God's promises and by obeying God's command to circumcise those in his home. So we read then of Abraham's house receiving God's covenant sign of circumcision. And where does this sign begin to be given? With Abraham's son Ishmael. Isn't that interesting? The descendants of Abraham then will be mixed. Both the elect and the non-elect alike, those who've been chosen by God and not been chosen by God alike, receive the covenant sign of Abraham. And this mix then continues throughout the history of the nation of Israel both those chosen by God and saved by His grace and those not chosen by God, continue to be God's people in the nation of Israel, all receiving the sign of circumcision. And because of Abraham's faith in God, we see him immediately seeking to obey his covenant obligation here. And this includes everyone in his house, whether they are servants who have been bought, or whether they have been servants who have been raised in his house. And we see that this covenant sign includes Abraham, who at 99 years old was circumcised. He knew it was through him and through his chosen descendants then that this promise of salvation and this blessing to the nations will ultimately come. So Abraham is baptized when he is 99 years old. And then we read of Ishmael. Sorry, he was, Abraham was circumcised when he was 99 years old. And then we read of Ishmael, who was 13 years old when he was circumcised. Because he too will bear the mark of God's covenant to Abraham throughout his life. And the rest of the men who live in Abraham's household are circumcised as well. 
But notice the emphasis on the day. Verse 22, that very same day. And again, verse 26, that very same day. This reveals that this is a turning point in world history, like when Noah enters the ark or when Israel is set free from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. This is a day to remember among God's people. See, as the day of Pentecost was the birthday of the church, So here we see the day of circumcision is the birthday of Israel. So what we find then through these verses and in this passage of Scripture is that God's chosen people receive his covenant sign. And as I mentioned before, I appreciate his writings on God's covenant. Samuel Renahan, in his excellent book, The Mystery of Christ, writes this of circumcision. He says, The addition of circumcision subsequent to this statement of faith and justification was a confirmation to Abraham that what he believed would indeed take place. God promised Abraham that from his offspring would come one who would bless the nations. And so God added circumcision to confirm this promise outwardly. Those who are circumcised are the people of the one who will bless the nations. And so here in the book of Genesis, we find Moses is the one recording these words for Israel so that they will know the purpose of the mark that their men bear, as well as recognize God's covenant that has been made with them. But what do we find as we continue reading through the Old Testament? That generation after generation, Abraham's descendants, Israel, break God's covenant. They break the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his descendants. In Exodus chapter 4, we read of Moses himself failing to circumcise his son. So we continue reading forward in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, after God had freed Israel from their slavery in Egypt, in the wilderness, Israel again fails to circumcise their sons, which is why Joshua then must circumcise them before they enter the land that God had promised them. And we continue to see such unfaithfulness and disobedience through God's people Israel throughout the Old Testament. And yet, God's covenant promises remain with his chosen people, throughout the Old Testament until we come to the New Testament when God the Son himself becomes a descendant of Abraham. Now, when we think of the coming of Christ, we often think of our Christmas celebrations. When we read together from Luke chapter 2, which indeed is a wonderful passage of Scripture, but often we end our readings Christmas time with Luke chapter 2, verse 20. Don't miss what comes in the very next verse. Luke 2, verse 21, we read these important words. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You see, Jesus Christ is the long-awaited descendant of Abraham who then blesses the nations with salvation. It is Jesus Christ who then comes and lives in the place of disobedient, sinful men and women who are under the very wrath of God for our sin. 
And after living righteously for us, He then is nailed to the cross where His blood pours out under the judgment of God as the punishment for our sins in our place. It is then Christ who is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. And as the one who received the covenant sign that pointed to himself as the one who would finally bring and accomplish this promise of salvation. So it is as we look to Christ, as we believe in what Christ has done, that we are saved. Just as Abraham looked forward to the coming of Christ through the promises he received from God and believed in Christ and himself was justified by God declared righteous or counted righteous because of, not of his righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness for his people. So you see then Abraham is a father in scripture in two ways. He is the physical father of descendants who share his blood in the nation of Israel. But he is also the spiritual father of descendants who share in his faith. And it is only when you share the faith of Abraham in the coming of salvation in Jesus Christ that you receive the promised blessings of salvation in him. It is through Christ that you receive the fulfillment then of God's covenant promises and his blessings of salvation. So it's now with all of this in mind, brothers and sisters, that we are ready to consider the relationship between circumcision and baptism. Because those holding to infant baptism teach that as Abraham gave the old covenant sign of circumcision to his children, now believers should receive the new covenant sign of baptism for their children. And give it to their children. There's this parallel that's made between God's covenant with Abraham for Abraham and his descendants. Now with God's covenant in Christ for believers and their children. That's what's called the covenantal argument for infant baptism. But I want us to look together at four biblical passages here. As we consider the relationship between circumcision, and baptism. So let's first go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, verses 4 to 12. Because here we read of John the Baptist and the message he preaches to the Jews as he was preparing them for the coming of Christ. And listen to the words of his warning to Israel. Matthew 3, verses 4 to 12. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to him, he said to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What do we see here then? It is not through the physical descent of Abraham that God has chosen his people to receive the blessings of Abraham. It is through those who share in the faith of Abraham as they repent of their sins and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers through his own shed blood for his people. See, with the coming of Christ, there is no longer need for Israel's circumcision. And they need to repent of their sins and receive Christ as their Savior. Then Abraham will truly be their father. Then the second passage that we want to look at is Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. And we're going to read all the way from verse 9 to verse 25. Because here in these verses, we see the Apostle Paul explaining how we should understand the Abrahamic covenant especially through what we read here in chapter 17. So I want us to read this entire passage and understand here the relationship between faith and circumcision and salvation and justification by the blood of Christ. So Romans 4, verses 9 to 25. Paul writes, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, let's keep reading. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, calls these things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had been promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. What words we have here from this chapter explaining to us Abraham In this covenant, here we find Abraham believing in God and trusting in his promise of salvation to come in Christ before he was circumcised. 
so he'd be the father of all those who believe, whether they are uncircumcised or circumcised. So Abraham's faith comes before the covenant sign of circumcision to show that God's chosen people of salvation in Christ are not merely those who are Abraham's natural descendants of Israel, who are then required to keep the law, but are those who are Abraham's spiritual descendants in Christ because they have believed in God's promises. Do you see then this relationship that is required of the true descendants of Abraham who recognize and see Abraham as their spiritual father by believing in Christ? Let's turn to the third passage of Scripture then, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. So here we see how Abraham has become the father of all those who have faith in Christ. And it is through Christ that the nations are then blessed in Abraham, as God had promised to Abraham. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. Paul writes here to the churches of Galatia, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are what? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So here we find who have Abraham as our father. It's those who have faith in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised. We're all one. In Christ Jesus, and it is us who then receive the new covenant sign of baptism. Then there's one final passage of scripture we should look to this morning, and that's Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, because here we see the most direct connection and explanation of the relationship between circumcision and baptism. And pay close attention to Paul's argument here. Colossians 1, excuse me, Colossians 2, verses 11 to 15. Paul writes here, In him, that is in Christ, in him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Do you recognize then the relationship between circumcision and baptism here? Now, while I am so grateful for R.C. Sproul, for Ligonier Ministries, and for many otherwise faithful men of God who have deeply impacted my life and understanding of Christian doctrine, I must follow God's word wherever 
it leads and with whatever it reveals. And while I love my Reformed and Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ who baptize their babies as covenant children, they are not following God's word. And they have flattened God's covenants in Scripture. Do you see how? Infant baptism confuses the old covenant made with Israel with the new covenant made through Christ. Circumcision showed what needed to take place in the hearts of Israel because of God's old covenant promises. But baptism shows us what has taken place in our hearts because of Christ's new covenant promises. So circumcision revealed what needed to take place in the heart. And baptism shows what has already taken place in the heart through the coming of Christ. That's why I agree with Spurgeon. Uh, you know how much I love Spurgeon. But the great Baptist preacher Spurgeon, who writes in his autobiography, If I thought it wrong to be a Baptist, I should give it up and become what I believe to be right. If we could find infant baptism in the word of God, we should adopt it. It would help us out of a great difficulty, for it would take away from us the reproach which is attached to us, that we are odd and do not as other people do, but we have looked well through the Bible and cannot find it, and do not believe that it is there. Nor do we believe that others can find infant baptism in the scriptures unless they themselves first put it there. And that's what we find, brothers and sisters, in this debate. Because we are baptized not because of our personal or our, our natural birth to our parents, but we are baptized because of our supernatural rebirth in Christ. Which brings us back to the central theme and point of what is revealed to us in Genesis chapter 17. Which is this, circumcision reveals Christ. And if circumcision reveals Christ and the promise of salvation that comes through Christ, then is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your Savior? Have you been saved by Christ's sacrifice for sinners? Because outside of Christ, it doesn't matter if your parents are believers. It doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised or not. It doesn't matter how closely you're connected to Abraham. There is no salvation outside of Christ. So like Abraham, believe in God and in God's promise of salvation, which has come for us in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and receive Christ as your Savior. Confess your sins to God and come to Christ as the one who took the very judgment of God upon himself for you so that you then will be forgiven of your sins, are reconciled with God, and receive eternal life to live once more in God's presence forever. But listen, if you are believing in Christ and your heart has been circumcised by God's grace, but if you haven't been baptized as a believer yet, then there's also this word for us. Don't delay any longer. Don't delay any longer. If Christ has changed your heart, if you are believing in Christ, be baptized to show that your old sinful self has died with Christ and has been buried with Christ in his death and has been raised up in newness of life 
because of Christ's work of salvation in your soul. Abraham received his covenant sign that very same day. May you receive God's covenant sign of baptism as a testimony of Christ's grace in your lives. So if you not, have not yet been baptized as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, follow Christ your Savior in baptism today. Don't wait any longer, but identify with your Savior because of what He has done for you. God's covenant people, His chosen people, receive His covenant sign. Because we have been chosen by God for salvation in Jesus Christ, may all of us receive His covenant sign of baptism when we come to faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful picture you have given us of your grace through baptism. May we not confuse this covenant sign with a covenant sign that did not save. May we recognize circumcision for what it was, a temporary sign that was given to show the coming of Christ in our need for his salvation. May we be those who believe in Christ, who share the faith of Abraham, who are then baptized into the body of Christ, as those who are children of Abraham, the true Israel of God who have been saved by faith. Father, we pray these things then in the name of our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.